You're listening to Political R&D. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, a sometimes reporter, oftentimes columnist, and always opinionated political commentator in southern Alberta. Today's episode is called Money Changes Everything, and my guest today is the MLA from St. Albert, Marie Renault. Today I have a guest with me who has decided to live on one month of what an ACE recipient makes. Now, ACE, of course, is the Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped, a Government of Alberta program that they've had a number of things over the last year. They've had uh, their cost of living allowance, or sorry, uh, inflation indexing was removed. They've had their pay dates actually changed from three days before the end of the month three business days before the end of the month to the first of the month, Uh, a change that three extra days without pay that you're not used to is definitely a big deal. So joining me today is the MLA from St. Albert, Marie Renault. Thank you. And so tell me about like some of the things that I've already mentioned. Is that what started this for you? Um, yes, I, I think a lot of frustration, you know, you just feel like how else can I explain, um, you know, some of the messages I'm receiving from ACE recipients, but also add to that, I get asked a lot, um, I get asked, why don't you try it, you should try living on ACE, how can you, you know, you should try living my life, walk a mile in my shoes, and so I do get that a lot, I imagine other politicians do as well. But I think just because of the nature of the portfolio that I have as critic, um, I do get it a lot. So I decided to, um, a few months back, I decided to get ready to do that. So I had to do a few things like let myself run out of staples, you know, really important things like toothpaste and shampoo and other things. And then I canceled my cable and, you know, I, I started to look at my work schedule to see how I would manage that and uh, decide to park my vehicle so that I could live on, you know, 1685. So I really was listening to people who were telling me that uh, I needed to actually experience some things to be able to understand. We did have a brief conversation last week, which is what I thought I should, I should get this, I should get this conversation going now. One of the things that you said was that you were starting to feel anxious. And that was last week. That was last Friday. So you're still a week away from when the next installment would come in. How are you feeling now? I'm anxious, really anxious, more than I ever expected to. You know, last week I start, I noticed that I was uh, making a beeline for my fridge and cupboards really frequently, you know, so I was checking, taking stock of what was left. I was constantly in my mind thinking, okay, I have this much money left. Uh, this can last for two days, this can last for a day, and constantly, you know, don't use too much bread, I only have this much butter left, I have none left now, but I mean, all of these things, I was um, just really anxious about making it to the end, and then I started to think, well, what if I don't, what if the last few days, what am I going to do, I still have to work, I still have to function, and the anxiety about, you know, even adding three hours of transportation to my work day, and so I take the bus now, and so it's a matter, okay, I need to pack these things. I need to leave early. Um, you know, you're tired at the end of the day. You're coming back. I'm a little more anxious about riding the bus because of COVID. Obviously, I'm a lot 
more aware of the people around me on the bus or surfaces that we're all touching. Um, these are things I did not worry about transporting myself before. But more than that, it's like this feeling, the part of the feelings that really got to me were super personal about my place in, in my family. And so I'm the mom, mm -hmm. right? And so I have two adult kids and I've always been the one that I always help. I love to help them. I love, I really enjoy helping people when I can. And sometimes that's financially or I can do something for them or drive over leftovers for them or make soup when they're sick. And I can't do any of those things. And so, you know, like even at Thanksgiving, I went to my daughter's house. So I was supposed to bring a dish. I couldn't afford to make what I would normally afford, you know, which, you know, I brought what I could afford and it was fine. I mean, it doesn't speak highly of my cooking, but <laughs> I did that. You know, my son was leaving two days later to go to the, uh, to go to London with his wife. Um, got a fellowship there at King's College. And so I couldn't even drive them to the airport. And that's my job is to drive them to the airport, but I couldn't. And they all understood, they're lovely. And, but it made me feel bad. And it sort of took a little chunk out of my self-esteem and, and, and the way that I see myself and my place in the family. And I just feel like, you know, people have said to me, oh, I'll let me buy you a coffee. You don't have, and, and I know they're just being kind, but it made me feel dependent. And so that loss of independence and how I view myself is really something I expected to feel at the level that I'm feeling. And so, you know, I, I'm grateful that I can't unlearn this stuff and unfeel it and I will never forget this. But it actually breaks my heart that mine is really so fake in a way because it's not real because I have privilege. And yeah. I go back to my normal life afterwards. But it breaks my heart knowing that just that little tiny fraction of what I'm feeling is a reality for tens of thousands of people. And, Honestly, I don't actually know how they do it. But what I've also seen is their incredible resourcefulness and their support for me. And I'm not even really struggling in the big scheme of things. Like people have offered me money or to take the ball to meet me, to bring me biscuits. Um, I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, I'm learning a lot. And now because you've had so much contact with um, people who've been on H because before you were an elected MLA, you were, what was, what was your role before? Sure. So I've, I've worked with uh, people with disabilities for most of my adult life, but my last job for, I spent 14 years as the executive director of a nonprofit that provided support to people with disabilities. So residential support, employment support, I think we had around 200 staff. So it was like a medium sized organization. Okay. So all of the individuals that we supported were Asian recipients. Okay. So you have, you've got a really long background with people who've been struggling with some of these things. And so you're, you're well versed in, as you said, kind of things that you need to do or things that uh, clients before have said to you, these are the things I've had to do to get through the month. Yeah. And so you were saying that you also made a sale today. I did. So, you know what, some of the stories I, I, I get, I, I'm completely overwhelmed by the messages I'm getting, whether it's on social media or, um, you know, emails. And so people are telling me their stories about different things they've had to do. And a lot of people have told me about selling things. And so in particularly difficult months, um, very Christmas is a good example or holiday. 
um, back to school. They've had to sell possessions and get through the month. And uh, one story that um, was really heartbreaking was a, a fellow, he's a boiler maker actually, and had a sort of a degenerative uh, disease that got too bad. And then he was injured at work. Um, so, and he's on age. And um, one of the things he'd received as a young person, I think it was a grandparent of his, uh, sent him a brand new crisp $20 bill and he kept it this whole time. And uh, it got really bad one month, he needed food. And so he had to use that $20 bill. And so, you know, that was really hard to hear, but I've heard it from so many people, not, not to mention the loans that they're having to take out that are, you know, put them into this really bad cycle of, of debt and high interest. But I decided that I couldn't make it to the end of the month. So selling a sweater that I have not worn, I actually was pretty proud of myself, bought it in the summer, it was on sale. I was hoping to use it this winter, but um, I need to um, I need to cover the expenses. I can't do it. I, I I have too many things to purchase. Plus, I have a cat who um, I adopted recently, and who is out almost out of food as well. And so, you know, it's something that I did that I have to do. I mean, it's virtual, right? I, I'm not. I have the money that I can pay for it myself, but actually my daughter's going to buy it because she likes it apparently. But um, I, I'm, do, I'm doing it and I'm trying to do it publicly to show people like me who are privileged that this is, this is what it looks like. This is what poverty people that live on age, this is what it looks like. And I'm so lucky that I don't, I don't have a disability. So I've not had those barriers as well. Well, and I can't even imagine how different this would be if I had physical limitations to being able to walk to the grocery store or cook for myself or get to the bus. All of these things that aren't a problem for me, but are a problem for or a barrier for other people. Yeah, absolutely. When did that anxiety first begin? Because like you said, you had to you know, run out of shampoo, you had to run out of some staples. So did the anxiety start as you were watching some of this go down and, and kind of thinking, oh, no, I'm not buying anything yet. I'm going to wait until the next month when, when I'm restricted. Yeah, it, it set in before. I mean, it became real when I start. well, uh, the day I canceled cable, you know, that was just like, oh, my God. And then I knew I wasn't going to have a vehicle. But it started pretty much right away as I was letting myself run out of really important everyday things like you know toilet paper and I was I was thinking how am I going to get this all back home on the bus and it was such a departure for me because during COVID especially when we were locked down and trying to keep our excursions to the store to once a week and things I found myself buying extra so that I could prevent myself having to go to the store right bit of a stockpile of uh, supplies that I needed and, and I no longer have any of that. I have no sort of safety net in terms of supplies. And then, you know, add to that, I now have to go out to the store more often. I have to take the bus, get to the store more often. And uh, so the anxiety has been there like from the beginning. But the food, you know, I've, I've used the phrase so many times and I'm kind of embarrassed that I used it without really understanding it. Like, food insecurity. I didn't really get it. I didn't really get it. And I'm still, I still have a lot of privilege. You know, I think if I was, I would get help instantly if I needed it. Right. But I've never understood really what that means is that it takes so little to throw you off your game. 
you know, in my game, in this case, is budgeting uh, on the amount that I have for the month. Like I, my the very first weekend, my sink backed up, so I turned on the dishwasher and had like you know a fountain. Oh. In my so I thought, oh my god, I can't afford to get a plumber. And so I had to watch YouTube videos and you know fix it myself. And so far, so good. To, you know, I I made this huge pot of uh, split pea and ham soup. So I bought this cheap ham to make a bunch of meals with, and I burnt it because I. My, I don't microwave, so I, you know, I was reheating it and I burnt the bottom, so it tastes like burnt pieces. Really, <laughs> and normally I would throw it out, right? But I can't. So you know, all these little things are. Um, although I'm not, I'm not really doing it. I'm not, I'm not living the life that a person on age lives. But I'm starting to feel a little bit of the stresses that they told me about for so long. Right. You know, I, I respect the fact that when your sink backed up, you didn't say, okay, you know what, this is going to have to wait until next month. Because like you said, in your position, you're not really doing this, but you know, you're, you're sticking to it. And um, I would not want to open up my pipes. Mm. <laughs> it's disgusting. I bet. <laughs> it's very disgusting. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the worst for me, and it's just personal is that you know, I couldn't, I couldn't drive my kid to the airport, you know, mm-hmm. I just, and I, it would have been, I thought about it. I thought about just making an exception and getting my vehicle and, you know, picking them up, but it, I didn't. And uh, that was the hardest part for me. Like it was so personal and it was so, yeah, it's hard to explain. Well, and I think too, because something that, that we had talked about it before as well is that I worked in an Asia adjacent office back in 2008 and I was actually on the income support side, but I remember talking to so many of the workers who with their income support clients would say, this person needs to be on Aish. And it was not a quick transition. These people were, they, they were stuck trying to get the applications in, get all of the documentation. It was a very long and slow process. Um, But one of the things that I think some people don't really understand is that not everyone starts out as an 18 year old on age and a lifetime thing. It's, it's people who actually, and my mother was one of these people who ended up with a degenerative disc disease. And she had, she had been a heavy duty partsman for 27 years, something like that. And it was a, it was this weird slow decline where she just kept, she kept trying, right? She needed to work. She had to go to work Um, and things just got worse and worse. And it got to the point where she could not stand anymore. And when she, like when she was trying to figure out what, what was going to happen, it, I mean, she, I was out of the house, but my sister was not. So she still had a a 16 year old daughter at home. Um, She had a mortgage to pay. She, and, and these are, you know, these are things that people don't necessarily think of when they think of an ACE recipient, they don't think of someone who has, you know, 35 years of work experience, you know, maybe tradespeople or like professionals who for no reason of their own or sorry, no, uh, none of their own doing end up in this situation. And, and I remember even talking to her about navigating the system. 
when she first went off work, she was on EI disability, but she was only, oh gosh, I don't know how old she was, maybe 48 or something. So very far away from uh, CPP eligibility. Mm -hmm. And so when the EI ran out, she was like, what am I, what do I do now? I, I still can't walk. And yeah, they were like, well, I guess you go to income support. And she was like, oh my God, what, like, how am I going to live on this? It was, this is something that not everyone really understands about an ACE recipient, that they've, they've been through other things. They've maybe had savings. They've maybe had homes and mortgages and cars. And, and now this is, this is what they're living on. Yeah. No, and, and that's such a good example is I think, well, when they think about an ACE recipient, maybe they have a stereotype in their head, you know, maybe it's someone who has Down syndrome that, you know, turned 18 and lives in their parents' basement. Sure. Or it's, you know, someone, you know, spinal cord injury or, or something like that. But it's 70,000 people and they're as, each one of them is as different as the next, whether I've met so many people that are you know, they've worked most of their lives, but because of whether it was an accident or a disease of some kind, um, you know, they have to rely on age. And it wasn't easy to get there. First, they used their savings. They used whatever they had. They got, they sold things. They're, you know, now they have roommates and they're renting a place. And it's just, there's just so many examples of people with serious, serious mental health um, problems where, you know, they, they, maybe they're doing well for part of the year and they'll try to work only to lose that job. And, and it's this vicious cycle. And I think for people, um, when they do finally get to the point where they're accepted onto age, they've been through the ringer, um, the assessment process, the intake process is grueling. It's really invasive. Um, so, you know, to hear the government say things like, well, you know, maybe not everyone's as disabled as they should be on age is, so completely irresponsible and out of touch with the reality. I mean, a lot of people don't even realize that um, there are a lot of people that are on age because they have no other source of income who are terminally ill. And so for whatever reason, there may be one woman I've spoken to, she's stage four cancer and um, you know things are escalating and, and getting worse for her. But before that, she was so proud. She ran a maintenance crew uh, for Suncor um, in Fort McMurray, she was, she said, I was smart. I invested. I bought critical illness insurance. I did all the right things, raised my kids, had a home. And for four years between the diagnosis, she could no longer work. And when she got on to ACE, she used up everything. Yeah. She had nothing left. So she had to go on ACE. She's currently on ACE. She has a couple of roommates. You know, she lives in it's a 45 minute drive to the hospital for treatment for her. And so it's, um, there's just so many examples. They're all so different. I, I know one fellow from an old job, he was uh, a boxer and um, you know, one bad bout, I guess he ended up with a severe brain injury and he had just been married. Um, so they used up what they had. She had to leave her job to care for her new husband who was now profoundly disabled with the brain injury he ended up not surviving very long after that but to watch the decline right they had been sort of so hopeful about their future and you know save for a home and have a child eventually to watch them have to learn about life with poverty because that's what Asia is and there's just so many examples and and there's just more than I can even explain and 
um, you know, just I, I think what I'm hearing more than anything is just this fear and anxiety from people because they're hearing the government sort of in an offhand way make these comments. Well, you know, age cuts, we're not saying it's going to get cut, but, you know, everything's on the table. We'll, we're reviewing. Well, fair enough. I mean, that's their right to say that they're reviewing programs. But while they're saying these things, they are causing even more stress to a group of people that, you know, that are struggling on a daily basis. And so it, it's my hope. I've been trying to do some member statements in the legislature and trying to post about what I'm learning and examples that I'm hearing to hopefully that the humanity in somebody in the government will say, okay, whoa, we have got to stop this. We have got to, if we are going to change something, let's be clear and honest and open about what we're doing and let's get this anxiety down because it is getting worse and worse. And so I'm hopeful that they're listening. Um, I've not seen any evidence that um, anything is changing, but um, you know, I'll, I'll continue. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you won't forget about this. You won't forget how this made you feel. Is it something that everyone should experience? But in a way, it's something that it almost seems like if, if you're going to represent these individuals, like if you're going to help these individuals out, then you kind of do need to walk a mile in their shoes. You do. I think you do. You know, I would have been a little more skeptical about saying something like that before. I would not hesitate now. Um, because these are things that a person can't explain to you. And so I've always had hundreds of people telling me. Right. It's hard to make it to the end. And I would think, well, go to the food bank or talk to your family. And now I understand how that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Food banks are, they're limited in what they can do. The food that they get or that they're able to give out doesn't meet all the needs of the people that need them. And so um, I do think it's a good idea that people, it creates empathy. I think it creates some understanding. And, you know, and on a personal note, you know, I'm a person of privilege now. I, I was not always. I come from actually a really poor family. And um, I grew up in Quebec. We moved a lot. And that's Poverty does that, right? I think last count, I is approximately like 13 different schools I went to. Um, we didn't have much. We never did, but I didn't really know any better. But I, I know I always knew when it was payday at home when I was a kid, right? Because I knew we would get groceries. And to this day, my mother lives on um, just a tiny bit more than what age recipients get. She does have uh, daughters that help her. But um, what I, I I forgot, I'd forgotten what that was like. And then I was even thinking, what what's that like for my own mom? You know, I take her out and pay for things or we'll buy her clothes. But how does that make her feel? You know, these are all really personal things mm -hmm. I'm also having to think about. So I do think that um, if politicians in general had a little bit more empathy and and deeper understanding about the issues that we're debating, I think that we would live in a better place. Hmm. I like that. I think that's a good place to end, actually. <laughs> um, well, I still look forward to hearing about this after the end of the month, but I, I did want to capture this because when you brought that up last week, I thought this is really important as as you get to the end of the month, like what what you're feeling right now. Are you keeping a journal or anything? A little bit. So I always have journaled. So I've always got notes about what I'm doing. And I, you know, I'm trying to more than anything, um, post publicly. And I think what I'm finding is that um, other age recipients are sort of 
I'll get a little impatient if I don't. I'll get a message like, uh, did you forget? <laughs> but um, you know, I'm trying to share what I'm learning and trying to make it a little bit interesting. But I am keeping track of my, obviously, my costs and, and what it's doing to me. But I, I am, you know, keeping a record of it. And then my other struggle is, you know, this is sort of personal too, is like, do I just stop like October 31st? Or do I alter something in my life to to try to better understand it? So, you know, these are all things, because again, you know, these ACE recipients that I talked to, they're pretty awesome. And so, um, you know, they're saying, they're pointing out the weaknesses of what I'm doing. And if I would like a deeper understanding, here's what I should do. Wow. And so um, they're very wise. And so I'm, you know, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do yet, but yeah. Evolving story. Thanks for joining me, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, here on Political R&D. Next week, we're beginning a new series called Women of AB Poly, where we'll bring perspectives from women in the province on the politics and potential of Alberta. You can find past episodes and articles on our website, politicalrnd.ca, and help support our work on Patreon at PoliticalRnd for early access and special features available to subscribers. Music